Because of the evidence derived from more than 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, you can be confident that your Bible accurately reflects the wording of the original New Testament documents. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host Nathan and in this episode we will be discussing the reliability of the New Testament. So it is common for modern critics of the Bible to attack the reliability of the New Testament. They usually do this by claiming that the original New Testament documents have been copied and edited so many times that it is impossible to know if the words in our modern Bible actually line up with what the apostles truly wrote. The purpose of this episode is to assure you that the original words of the New Testament have remained unchanged since their conception. So we're going to go over three primary areas, those being 1. External reliability, 2. Honesty and accuracy of the New Testament author's accounts, and 3. Internal reliability. We will first start with external evidence which supports the New Testament's reliability. Jesus and Christianity are mentioned by several ancient historians which lived during the 1st and 2nd centuries. Um, in my mind, I think the best reference to Christ comes from Tacitus, who lived from about AD 56 to 120. And in his work Annals, he stated that Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. And the Emperor Nero um, was the first major emperor that really strongly persecuted Christians. Uh, it's actually believed that Paul was uh, executed under Nero's reign. And so we see here by this account from Tacitus, which, mind you, is less than 100 years after the events of the New Testament took place, we can see um, some striking similarities between Tacitus's account and what we find in the New Testament. And we'll just go over seven of those. So, one, Christianity originated with Jesus Christ. Two, Christ was crucified. Three, Christ was crucified during the time of Tiberius. Four, Christ was sentenced to crucifixion by Pontius Pilate specifically. Five, Christianity began in Judea. Six, Christianity was checked for a moment. And seven, Christianity soon broke out in Rome. So there we just have seven nice congruencies between the works of Tacitus, which is an ancient Roman historian, and that of the New Testament. The next evidence for the reliability of the New Testament comes from a historian known as Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and he lived uh, approximately AD 37 to 100. And this quote I'm about to read you is from his work, Wars of the Jews. Now there's two main quotes from Josephus that are usually brought up when discussing the uh, historicity of Christ. 
There's one that has clearly been modified and edited probably later by Christians because this writing, which claims to be by Josephus, actually claims that Jesus was the Christ and performed many miracles and stuff. So that's most likely edited. So I really don't even bring that one up. But this one looks authentic, and most historians do agree that this is authentic. Again, this is from Wars of the Jews, and the quote is this. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Now, something that is interesting about this is that Josephus mentions that Jesus was called the Christ, but Josephus, he never, as far as anybody knows, converted to Christianity, so he as a Jew would not have viewed Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. And so just a few congruencies between Josephus here and the Gospels is that, one, a man named Jesus existed. Two, Jesus was labeled the Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed one. And three, Jesus had a brother named James. And I like this quote because even though there's just a few congruencies between this passage and the New Testament, I like that it brings up such a tertiary detail that Jesus had a brother named James. And the third example we'll go over is from a man named Lucian who was born in AD 125 and lived to about 200. And he wrote a work called The Passing of Peregrinus, which it's a work of satire. And so it's kind of like mocking Christians in this work. And again, you know, this is before the end of the second century. So he says, Indeed, people came even from the cities in Asia sent by the Christians. The poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. Furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once. For all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Therefore they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. So if any charlatan and trickster, able to profit by occasions, comes across them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing upon simple folk. So here he's kind of making a mockery of, hey, these silly Christians, they're just willing to give up everything. So if somebody just comes to them, you know, and wants to take their stuff, it's basically like a free exchange for them. And so um, for this, I'll just point out six congruencies between that work of Lucian and the Gospels, which are one, Christians believe they have obtained eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus. Two, Jesus taught that his followers are his family. Three, Christians deny polytheism. Four, Christians worship their first lawgiver. Five, the founder of Christianity was crucified. And six, Christians consider material objects dispensable. And just taking all those three together, here we have over 15 congruencies between extra-biblical pagan authors and that of the New Testament. And again, there are more extra-biblical works that support what is recorded in the New Testament, um, but we just don't have time to go over all of that today. So those three that I presented, though, in my mind, I think those are the strongest and best examples of ancient pagan authors supporting the historicity of the New Testament. Another neat thing to look at is that uh, in the book of Acts, Luke records at least 84 details which are historically considered to be facts. 
Uh, examples include naming the correct port, which is along the destination of a ship crossing from Cyprus, the correct location for the river near Philippi, the surplus of images in Athens, the correct high priest of this time being Ananias, and the location of the fair havens in respect to Lycia. Furthermore, the Gospel of John records at least 59 details that are historically known to be facts. Examples of this include the correct location of Jacob's well, the hostility between Jews and Samaritans during the time of Jesus, and the correct distance from Jerusalem to Bethany. And if you're interested in looking at all of these facts recorded in the book of Acts and John, these examples were taken from Geisler and Turek's book, which is titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and they're found specifically between pages 256 and 268. So, we've just seen that secular, extra-biblical data validate what the New Testament says about Christianity and the life of Christ. Furthermore, just two out of the 27 New Testament books contain over 140 historical facts. That's essential because it shows that the information in the New Testament and the information from other historical findings are congruent, which supports the New Testament being in line with reality with what it records. Um, but now we're going to transition into the honesty of the New Testament authors. So, the apostles of Jesus consisted of a dozen men who witnessed his miracles and resurrection from the dead. They were Jesus' closest followers and walked with him for multiple years. The available evidence we have shows that the apostles suffered imprisonment, torture, and death for their willingness to preach the gospel of Christ to the world. An article from National Geographic actually details the records of the apostles' deaths, stating that Peter was crucified, Paul was decapitated, Andrew was scourged and crucified, Philip was scourged and crucified, Bartholomew was skinned alive and decapitated, Thomas was impaled, and James was stoned and beaten in the head with a club. And most of this evidence actually comes from early church fathers, some of whom actually knew the apostles personally or knew students of the apostles. So this brings up the question, who would die for a lie? It's illogical to believe that someone would be tortured and killed for something that they knew was a lie. So for example, the only reason that Muslims commit suicide bombings in the name of Allah is because they genuinely believe that they will be rewarded for killing as many infidels as possible. That can be found in Surah 474, 9-111, etc. So you might be thinking now, okay, well, look, Muslims die for Islam, so how does the death of the apostles validate Christianity, whereas the death of Muslims does not validate Islam? And that's because the apostles died for what they physically witnessed to be true, whereas Muslims die for what they have been led to believe is true. You know, anybody can be falsely led to believe something is true. However, the apostles died because they actually experienced the resurrected Christ. And so anybody can be tricked into believing something by the words or writings of other people. But in the apostles' case, it's different because they died for what they scientifically observed to be true. And so that's why what this basically shows is that if you're going to die for something, if somebody dies for something that they proclaim, it's more logical to conclude that their belief is indeed genuine in the thing that they're dying for rather than they're lying. Because generally when people lie about something, it's because they'll get something out of it. 
And the apostles got nothing out of preaching the gospel of Christ except for being tortured and killed. And it's funny, a lot of atheists who don't really know anything about church history will think, oh, well, yeah, they just, they invented the writings of the New Testament to get power. And, well, you realize that the, quote, church, which really predominantly is the Catholic church, didn't even have any political power for centuries after the crucifixion of Christ and centuries after the apostles died. So no, they did not forge these writings to get power because that happened centuries later. They had no idea that what they were writing would eventually spark this whole worldwide movement. But because of this, we know that the apostles' belief was genuine because they knew that the gospel was true because they actually based their belief on scientific evidence, which was Jesus' miracles, his resurrection from the dead, and as discussed in the previous episodes of this podcast, um, Jesus' fulfillment of multiple messianic prophecies, which predicted intimate details of his life centuries before his birth. Bottom line is that believing that the apostles lied about their accounts of Christ takes much more blind faith than the contrary, because it is extremely unlikely that a large group of people would all die for a lie. And you'd think, you know, it's, to have a conspiracy, generally you want the least amount of people because the more people that are in on a fake conspiracy, the more chance there is of somebody, you know, jumbling their story or recanting and telling everybody the truth. But as far as we know, not one of the apostles changed their mind and said, wait, we're all lying. Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We stole his body or anything like that. They all maintain their commitment to death. And that says something about their intentions. So now we're going to look at the New Testament's recording of minute or embarrassing or scientific details even that imply that it really wasn't just made up out of thin air, these writings that they were actually witnessed. And so it's clear that even though they record many equivalent situations, they were not copied from another, first of all. This is apparent not only from the different styles of writing, but also from details that only make sense when the Gospels are read together. And a quick side note, even secular scholars acknowledge that they weren't exact copies of each other. The common belief is that, you know, Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke worked off of Mark, and then there was another source called Q, and John was written totally independently, and all this stuff. And that's that's why if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they're called the Synoptic Gospels because there's so many similarities in them, whereas John stands out distinctly from the other three because it really focuses on the divinity of Christ. And something cool is that John is the only gospel that says it was specifically written that you might believe and be saved. And because we know in Romans 10, 9 and various other verses that to actually be saved, you have to recognize Christ's divinity and submit to him as Lord. Um, it makes sense that John would focus on the divinity of Christ and his role as God. So let's get back to the details of these Gospels. So one example of these dependent details, it's actually been pointed out by detective and former atheist J. Warner Wallace. So Wallace reports that if one reads the Gospel of Matthew alone, then Matthew 26 verses 67 to 68 don't really make sense because Matthew 26 records Jesus' arrest and trial by the Jewish chief priests and verses 67 to 68 state that they spit in his face and hit him, and others smote him with the palm of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? 
So read alone, it's kind of confusing reading these verses because it's, you know, it's like, why would the Jews mockingly command Jesus to prophesy who hit him if the offender was standing right in front of his face? Whereas the dynamics of this scenario suddenly become clear when one reads the Gospel of Luke, because while describing the same event, Luke 22, verse 64 says that when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? So here we see that Jesus was insultingly commanded to prophesy who hit him because he was blindfolded and therefore could not physically see who struck him. While this fact was omitted from Matthew's gospel, it does not mean Matthew has an error or is in conflict with Luke. These details actually testify to the authenticity of the accounts and were put in the text by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all completely identical, then it would be obvious that these documents had been plagiarized. And so these interdependent descriptions that are present throughout the Gospels provide concrete evidence that even though they record the same events, they are separate sources of historical data which paint a clear picture of Christ if taken together as a whole. And people will oftentimes bring up, oh, there's contradictions in the Gospels, but I have looked at hundreds of these contradictions. It's been exhausting. And every time, they're never true contradictions. There's discrepancies, yes, but they don't actually contradict. I've never found a contradiction that is a real contradiction, you know, a claimed contradiction that is a tr truly irreconcilable. So while a contradiction would immediately prove something to be false because it breaks the law of logic known as the law of non-contradiction, discrepancies do not break this law. So an example of a discrepancy would be, say, you and I walk into the same room and we're asked to describe the furniture in the room. And I could say, oh, it's a, it's a blue couch and there's a green chair and there's a brown coffee table. And then you'd say, oh, there's a baby blue couch with black stripes on it, which would be a very ugly couch, I must add. And, you know, there's a forest green chair. Maybe you're more descriptive than I am in the little details. So... It might look on the face like a contradiction, but it's just a minor discrepancy that can easily be overcome, and it in no way actually diminishes the truth of our accounts, and that's the case with the four gospel accounts. There are many discrepancies because they were written by different men, which I'd just like to point out. It's kind of interesting because in the Old Testament law, accusations, they always had to be followed up by two or three witnesses. And here, God goes even further, and he gives us four witnesses of Jesus' ministry. So really, the world has no excuse for denying Christ. If you read the four Gospels, you have seen four witnesses. You have no excuse when you deny Christ and stand before God. And so another strong testimony for the New Testament's accuracy is the fact that it contains hundreds of embarrassing, subtle, and careless details. Perhaps the most notable one of these details is the record of women discovering Christ's empty tomb. The Hebrew society in Jesus' day was very patriarchal, and women had virtually no voice. So if the New Testament writers had fabricated the story of the empty tomb, then they would not have had women be the first to discover it, because a woman's word was worth less than a grain of salt in ancient times. Even deceased atheist Christopher Hitchens pointed out this in a speech he gave. He says that most of the witnesses to this are women illiterate, stupid, deluded, hysterical females of the kind who, in a Jewish court at that time, would have had about as much chance of being listened to as they would in Islamic court today. What religion that wants its fabrication to be believed is going to say, 
You've got to believe it, because we have some illiterate, hysterical girls who said they saw this. No, it's impressive to me. It's impressive to me that the evidence is so thin, and is so hysterical, and is so feeble, and is so obviously cobbled together, because it suggests that something was going on. There was some character, and I don't want to therefore profane those who think that there must have been something, and say, no, there was nothing. That's the end of the quote. And this is also recognized by virtually every New Testament scholar, including secular scholars. They recognize that, yeah, this detail shows that this wasn't just made up. Because if you're going to make something up and you want people to believe it, in that place and time and cultural setting, you would not have put women as the first discoverers of the tomb. And so that attests to the reliability of the New Testament that it actually records what truly happened. Uh, another strong detail is in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, which implies how Jesus' friends and family thought he had gone mad for making the claims he was making. So if Mark fabricated his recordings, then it is very unlikely that he would make up a tale of how everyone who knew Jesus thought he was going crazy, because this could serve to harm the face validity of Christ's claims. And uh, the final detail we'll look at is uh, recorded in John 19.34 and describes what happened when a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear after he had already died to ensure his death. And it reads this, But one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. So this description of blood and water is very significant from a medical perspective. Medical professionals Edwards, Gable, and Hosmer published a detailed article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986, which examines the aspects of Christ's flogging and crucifixion. And concerning John's description of blood and water spewing out of Christ's side after his death, they state, The water probably represented serous pleural and pericardial fluid, and would have preceded the flow of blood and been smaller in volume than the blood. Perhaps in the setting of hypovolemia and impending acute heart failure, pleural and pericardial effusions may have developed and would have added to the volume of apparent water. The blood, in contrast, may have originated from the right atrium or the right ventricle, or perhaps from a hemopericardium. And now, there is virtually no way that John, living 2,000 years ago, could have known about pericardial effusion and the physiological effects of crucifixion. So this detail greatly implies that John physically witnessed the death of Jesus due to its medical and biological accuracy. And so the abundance of these details throughout the Gospels testifies to their genuine nature. If the resurrection of Christ is viewed objectively and without bias, and specifically without materialistic anti-supernatural presuppositions, one would conclude that it is indeed a historical fact based on the nature of the gospel accounts that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Another quick side note, if you've listened to the first episode which covered messianic prophecies, you would remember that that instance was actually fulfilling a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would not have a bone broken because the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the thieves that were crucified with Jesus, but because they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs, and they pierced him with the spear. So here we have a great scientific fact mixed with a prophecy in the Old Testament. I think that's pretty cool. All right, so we've gone briefly over external evidence for the New Testament, and the accuracy and honesty of the New Testament author's recordings. So now we're going to look at the internal evidence of the New Testament's reliability. 
So first, let's talk about manuscript quantity. So concerning the New Testament, there are about 6,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and over 9,000 manuscripts of various other languages. So this is over 24,000 total manuscripts. Just to put that in perspective, the ancient work that comes in second place for manuscript quantity, because the New Testament is obviously first place with over 24,000, uh, the second place is Homer's Iliad, and it has approximately 2,000 total manuscripts. So here the New Testament has over 10 times the quantity of ancient manuscripts than the second place work, which is Homer's Iliad. So it blows that out of the water. Also, concerning the earliest manuscripts, as far as the date from the original to the copies, the New Testament comes in first with that as well, because the time between the originals and the earliest existing copies is less than a century. Uh, the time between the original Homer's Iliad and the earliest existing copy is approximately 400 years. And here's a quote from Geisler and Bocchino's Unshakable Foundations book, which states that the average time span between the original and earliest copy of the other ancient texts is over 1,000 years. However, the New Testament has a fragment within one generation of its original composition. Whole books appear within 100 years of the original, most of the New Testament within 200 years, and the entire New Testament within 250 years from the date of its completion. And we have complete Bibles showing up within a few centuries. We have Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And so just to really pound that in, here in the New Testament, you have copies showing up within 100 years of New Testament books. The most famous of this is probably P52, but a few early copies occur only within a century or so after the originals. And there's P52, P46 p66 and p67 um, so this shows that these gospels really were written shortly after the events they record so we've seen that the new testament surpasses every other ancient work to the point of embarrassment in terms of manuscript quantity and the time between the originals and earliest existing copies so the next question is how similar are the thousands of copies of new testament greek ancient manuscripts and just to point out, remember there is over 24,000 ancient manuscripts, but that's when you take into account Greek, Latin, and other languages. But as far as just purely ancient Greek manuscripts, which is the language that the New Testament was originally written in, there's about 6,000 copies. And I would like to just go over a quote here by Ehrman, Wallace, and Stewart, which states that in Greek alone, we have more than 5,500 manuscripts today. Many of these are fragmentary, of course, especially the older ones but the average Greek New Testament manuscript is well over 400 pages long. Altogether, there are more than 2.5 million pages of text, leaving hundreds of witnesses for every book of the New Testament. Out of these 2.5 million pages of Greek text, there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants. The estimations differ between maybe 200,000 to 400,000. But we're going to run a little equation, and we're going to assume the worst. Let's assume there are 400,000 textual variants within these Greek manuscripts. And just to be clear, a textual variant is defined as any difference from a standard text that involves spelling, word order, omission, addition, substitution, or a total rewrite of the text. And this could be something as 
simple as forgetting to put a letter in the name John or something. That would count as a textual variant. So first, of the 400,000 textual variants we're working with, 75% of them are nonsense or spelling differences. They really don't have any effect on the actual text. They're simple to spot. Like I just said, it would be like forgetting, you know, if you're writing in English, like forgetting to spell the name John with an H or something basic like that. That's very easy to tell, especially by the context of the passage. Just over 24% of these variants are word order changes. So just an example in English would be, I had spaghetti for dinner versus for dinner, I had spaghetti. Something basic like that, that actually doesn't change the fundamental meaning of the sentence, but it's just a little rearranged. And less than 1% of these textual variants actually change the meaning of the text significantly. And this isn't based on some biased Christian scholar's interpretation. Everybody admits this. Even Bart Ehrman, the, probably the most famous textual critic in the world, he admits that the vast, vast, vast majority of these textual variants do not matter. They do not actually affect any true major Christian doctrine and are really insignificant. So going back to our little equation, if we take this less than 1%, we'll, we'll say it's a total 1%. So 1% of 400,000 equals 4,000. So we have a maximum of 4,000 significant differences among the 2.5 million pages of text. And this is a quote by Dan Wallace, a New Testament scholar. Uh, he says that concerning the less than 4,000 variants that actually change the meaning of the text, the deity of Christ is untouched, the virgin birth is untouched, the resurrection of Christ is untouched. Everything that the Bible teaches that is a cardinal truth, an essential truth, is found there in the manuscripts and is untouched by the variants. So back to our equation. Let's assume that there is an average of 100 words per page of the 2.5 million pages of Greek New Testament text. So if we assume that, then we have 100 words times 2.5 million pages equals 250 million total words. And we will take those 4,000 meaningful variants and that equals 0.0016% of the 250 million words. Therefore, the 250 million words of Greek text are 99.9984% similar in what they teach. And that's just amazing. I mean, to have that degree of preservation is insane. It makes... One think of Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, which state that the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And Jesus' words when he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And truly, God preserved his word because that is a phenomenal statistic right there. 99.9984% similar in fundamental meaning of important texts. No other ancient work has anything close to this degree of precision and accuracy when it comes to the manuscript quality. Another really cool thing is that the early church fathers, most of which lived within a century or two after the apostles, they have hundreds and hundreds of citations of the New Testament books. 
So two of the biggest giants of biblical scholarship, Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman. Ehrman actually studied under Bruce Metzger, and I believe he was his last student at a Princeton Theological Seminary. They state in their book titled The Text of the New Testament that besides textual evidence derived from New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, the textual critic has available the numerous scriptural quotations included in the commentaries, sermons, and other treatises written by early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. And that's awesome because here we see that the manuscripts themselves are internally coherent and are virtually 100% identical in what they teach and that the you know literally over 99% of the changes are just nonsense or word order changes that don't affect the actual meaning of the text. But on top of that, we are able to compare thousands of quotations by early church fathers with the texts. So we would obviously see if anything was significantly changed because here we have men living within a couple centuries after the texts were written and they're quoting the New Testament books and it's clear that they line up together and it's what we have in our Bibles today. It's also important to note that all 27 books of our New Testament were viewed as scripture within only decades of their conception. And this, again, can be found by looking at the writings of early church fathers. Uh, some of these fathers were Ignatius, which lived from AD 35 to 108. He quoted eight New Testament books as scripture at least. Polycarp, which lived from AD 69 to 155, he quoted over 13 New Testament books of scripture. Irenaeus, which lived from about AD 120 to 200, uh, he quotes over 1,000 passages from almost all of the books of the New Testament. And then Hippolytus, living in 170 to 236, quoted over 24 New Testament books as scripture. And furthermore, they provide evidence on how some of the apostles died. One early church father mentions the death of Paul and Peter in the 60s. So just to recap, we have gone over external evidence of the New Testament's reliability. We've gone over the accuracy and honesty of the New Testament author's writings. And we just finished up with the internal evidence, which was really concerned with the manuscript quantity and quality. Again, there was so much more we could have gone over. Maybe I'll do another podcast, like a part two of New Testament reliability, and we can go over even more. But I think that's a great start to just see that you can trust the New Testament. Because what we went over so far in these last two episodes was Messianic prophecy. And so I've had experiences where I've dialogued with atheists and, you know, I show them these prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. And usually the first response is, oh, those prophecies were written down after Jesus' life like after the fact. So they you know, forged those to make them fit the life of Christ. But we have the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which shows that that claim falls flat and fails completely. And after it's shown that it is ridiculous to believe that the Old Testament was forged after Jesus's life because the overwhelming evidence supports that all these prophecies were written down centuries before his birth, the next rebuttal they'll turn to is that, oh, the New Testament authors lied about the life of Christ to make him fit these prophecies. But again, 
As far as we know, all the New Testament authors were tortured and killed for their beliefs. Their writings record embarrassing, minute, and detailed scientific explanations that really they could not have known in the time that they were living. And so that kind of throws that out the window because we can see that these are authentic writings and they died for what they wrote. So after it's shown that all of the prophecies of Jesus were written centuries before his birth and the New Testament authors were most likely authentic in their writings, the next attack is usually that, well, those writings were changed over time by scribes and they made mistakes and so we don't really know what the New Testament actually said, but giving the quantity and quality of all the New Testament manuscripts in Greek that we just looked at, that claim also does not work out when compared to the evidence. So if you take the last two episodes concerning prophecy and then this episode altogether, you have a foolproof attack, an apologetic arsenal that cannot be broken because any claim they try to make to deny God's word, you have the evidence for it. You, you have the evidence of the Septuagint and Dead Sea Scrolls that the Old Testament is ancient, and you have all this great evidence that the New Testament authors were most likely truthful in what they wrote and that their writings were preserved from the originals. So I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Thank you all for listening.